Good morning, and welcome to church on this first Sunday in the season of Lent. My name is Nick. If you don't know me, I'm the associate minister here at Knox, and I'd love to get to know you. If we haven't had a chance to chat or to talk, um, please send me an email or fill out the contact card. It'd be great to get to know you. As Since we're entering this new season of the church year, I thought it would be worthwhile to begin by just talking about the Christian year. The Christian year is structured in a way to help us to intentionally enter into the story of Jesus and the story of all God's people from all time. Beginning with Advent, we join in the story of those who wait, those who waited for the Messiah to first come, And we realize that we also wait for the day when Jesus, our Messiah, will come again and fulfill all hope, bring all joy, peace, and love. This trend continues through Christmas and Epiphany, and this season of Lent is no different. Even as Jesus prepared himself to go to Jerusalem to bear the cross, we also prepare ourselves to go to the cross with Jesus, to closely examine the life that Jesus lived for our sakes, and to realize what it means for us to follow him, that his cross-shaped life should be ours as well. As I said in the weekly email yesterday, there's something about a good story. There's something about a good story that captures the imagination so well that can help us to understand deep truths in ways that stick with us and that we don't quickly forget. It's for these reasons that Jesus' ministry seems to be filled with wonderful stories that he tells. And these stories help his closest friends to understand in increasing ways exactly what it means for them to be following him. This Lent, we'll be looking at some of these stories that Jesus tells as he turns toward Jerusalem. We'll be listening for what they mean for our lives and how they invite us to more closely follow in Jesus' resolute way of loving service, of chosen sacrifice, of abiding friendship for the sake of the whole world. So today we begin this season and we begin this series with two parables that are connected, which together illustrate the true depth of the call to follow Jesus and what it will mean when God's kingdom and the ways of King Jesus really and truly grasp our hearts, shape our lives, and fill our imaginations. There have always been certain stories that capture the imaginations of entire generations, even entire cultures of people. Some of these stories, in fact, seem to be timeless, even seem to be very cross-cultural in their appeal. Stories like stories of hidden treasure, lost to the ages, something ancient and secret being out there somewhere, waiting for somebody to discover it, perhaps waiting for you or me to discover it. I think of Indiana Jones or stories of pirates hiding buried treasure on islands far out to sea, but maybe, maybe only just beyond the horizon, possibly even in our own backyard. 
To think that there's something so valuable that we are presently unaware of, but that we could find and that could change our life, that maybe could even change the whole world forever. It's quite an exciting idea. And so Jesus begins with a parable that's just this sort of story. It's a fairy tale that all of his disciples would have been familiar with. It was a fantasy that almost everybody held. A story about hidden treasure. Burying treasure was commonplace in the Roman Empire and in the ancient Near East. There were no banks, there were no places to secure your wealth or personal treasures, and with the constant and impending threat of being conquered, of being overrun by enemies, it was not wise to keep treasures just lying around your home. So treasure would be buried in the ground. But what is buried is sometimes forgotten. And for any number of reasons, this treasure in Jesus' parable was forgotten in the ground, ripe for the taking. Now, finding treasure, on the other hand, that was not at all common. To find a hidden cache of jewels and coin, it would be like winning the lottery is for us. We can picture this man's joy when he, almost certainly a laborer in the field, unexpectedly finds a buried treasure. There are all sorts of legal reasons, contextual reasons, why this man behaves in precisely the ways that he does in this parable. Like, for instance, if the owner of the field tried to claim that it was his treasure he'd found, so he doesn't dig it up before he buys the field. He buries it again. He wants to ensure that no matter what, this treasure can be his. He finds it and hides it again. He doesn't even need to take it out of the ground to realize the significance of what it is that he's just found. He does not need to count the coins. He doesn't require to have the jewels appraised. He knows what he's looking at. He recognizes the opportunity of a dream come true. He sells all that he has and he buys that field. In the same way that people have dreams of wealth and of security, we all also imagine a more perfect world. A world where governments don't try to weigh and balance the economy against public health. A world where parents don't have to watch their children grow ill and die. A world where wealth is not acquired on the backs of the poor and the marginalized where even the simplest things of life can be enjoyed to the full as the good gifts that they are. These things, too, seem to be fantasies. These things seem to be the things of our waking dreams, but they are, in fact, the realities of the kingdom of God, and our dreams become realized in its discovery. It promises to us all of this and more. And Jesus here is telling us that the way this man responds to finding a treasure is how we should respond to the kingdom. The man who finds this treasure and buys the field, 
he's not sacrificing anything. He's not behaving sacrificially. He is acting purely in self-interest. He knows the worth of what he has seen. And so he gladly and joyfully sells all that he has in pursuit of it. In this story, we have a man taken by surprise by this treasure. And when he sells all that he has for the field, we know that it is of no loss to him. Presumably, if he had to, he can work the field himself to sustain his life. Or he can sell portions of the land to still other buyers. Or he can even use the coins in that treasure to provide for his life. Perhaps, to some of us, this story seems perfectly reasonable and realistic. Not at all surprising. And so Jesus tells another. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. It's the same point that Jesus is trying to make his disciples aware of. The great value of the kingdom of God, surpassing all else, worth any cost. But this time, the situation is different. The merchant is not surprised by this pearl. He has been looking for it. He has been actively seeking it out. And when he finds the pearl of great price, he, like the man in the previous parable, sells all that he has and buys that pearl. But now, well, now all that he has is a pearl. And he can't sell it again because if he sells the pearl to buy food or home, he no longer has the pearl. The pearl is now his singular possession. It is his greatest joy. It cannot be portioned out. It cannot feed him or house him. But with delight, this merchant has bought this pearl. To him, it was worth any cost. Presumably, this merchant also had other pearls in his possession. But even these he gladly sells for the one pearl of such great worth. So too, Jesus is saying that with the kingdom of heaven, we have no need for any other kingdom, any other worldview, any other ideology, any other framework. The kingdom itself is sufficient for us. The way of Jesus is the only way that we need. It is all-encompassing in the way that it satisfies. It is complete in the joy that it brings. I can finally give up building my own kingdom. I can rid myself of anything I had previously put toward that end. We, together, can finally acknowledge the flaws of our city, of our province, of our nation, because it is not in these things in which we will finally find our satisfaction. We need not delude ourselves any longer, because we have found at last the pearl of great price. We have seen the coming kingdom of our God. Both of these parables show us people 
who know exactly what their heart has been longing for. A man who happens across treasure hidden in a field and immediately acts to secure it as his own possession. A merchant who finds a pearl of great price and will spare no cost to possess that pearl for himself. This, Jesus says, is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is, I know it when I'll see it, goodness. It's worth any and every cost satisfaction. It is the greatest joy of every human heart. And it is the deepest longing of all creation. It is what we were made for. Today, whether you are actively looking for the kingdom, or if you're the type who might stumble across it while you're going about your business, will you know it when you see it? How will you recognize it? What about God's kingdom so grips your heart and convinces your mind of its profound worth? How will you rejoice in, celebrate, and attain God's kingdom for yourself? Is it worth all that you have? Is it worth even your very life? Jesus says that it is. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world if they miss the opportunities to step into the kingdom of God, even on earth as it is in heaven? John Calvin writes on this parable that we are so captivated by the allurements of the world that the kingdom of heaven fades from our view. And in consequence of our carnality, the spiritual graces of God are far from being held by us in the estimation which they deserve. Justly, therefore, does Christ speak in such lofty terms of the excellence of the kingdom of heaven that we ought not to feel uneasiness at relinquishing on account of it whatever we reckon in other respects to be valuable. This kind of giving up for the sake of the kingdom is far more than giving up coffee for Lent. What do we reckon to be valuable? What do you reckon to be valuable in your life? What does our church understand to be worthwhile as a community? If we knew that to be more fully realized, to realize God's kingdom more completely in our midst, we had to give up something that we really enjoy, would we do it? Or if we had to sell all that we owned, 
like the rich young ruler that Jesus encounters? Would that be too much? Or as a church, if we had to never hear the organ again, or if we had to wait five or more years for a senior minister, or if we had to find ourselves without a church building or without a trust fund, would these costs be too high for us to pay? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that these are the costs. But if they were, if it was clear to us that this was the way God was calling us to join in his kingdom work, would we be willing to pay them? If we are unwilling, then I fear that we love these things too much and we love God's kingdom far too little. Because what good is Netflix or an organ a house or a sanctuary, a paycheck or a trust fund, if we are not where our Lord is, if we miss the opportunity of a lifetime to see and to realize the coming kingdom of our God, to participate in his revelation, to announce the fulfillment of our deepest hopes and longings. Far too often, I think we convince ourselves that the good things that we know and enjoy are the best things, and that if we dare let them go, that we'll be losing out. But the promise of our God is that nothing, nothing we could give up is of greater value than the kingdom which he promises to us. When we come to see the kingdom of God, as treasure hidden in a field, as a pearl of great price, as something priceless that all people dream of, of the promises of God made real for his people of life and life to the full, then, and only then, will we also come to value it so highly that we, like Paul and Timothy and Philippians, will consider everything a loss compared to the joy of knowing Christ, of realizing his kingdom on earth in its partially revealed state, still buried in a field where we found it, but present enough that we should act to acquire it, even if, like the pearl, it will be the only thing that we can hold, trusting that one day we will experience its vast richness for ourselves that we will enjoy the beauty of the thing which we possess, that in losing our lives for Christ's sake and for the sake of his kingdom, truly we will have found them. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to reflect on a couple of questions in a few minutes of silence. And, and these questions really are just things to reflect on, but I want to invite you as you come up with maybe the simple answers to these questions to also pray about them and to seek God's will for them. And so for the first sort of connected question is, do you so long for the kingdom of God that you will know it when you see it? And what things of God's kingdom draw your heart toward it.
And then secondly, ask yourself, what would you struggle to give up for the sake of the kingdom? What cost of following Christ is too great for you, for our church? We'll give you a couple of minutes to reflect and pray on these questions. Thank you.